Hello and welcome to uh, this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Niall Jefferson and today I'm down in Wollongong, Australia with Associate Professor Stuart Mackay. Professor Mackay completed his uh, fellowship training here in New South Wales and then went to do a postgraduate fellowship in Adelaide with the late Sam Robinson and Professor Simon Carney in Adult Airway Reconstructive Surgery and Head Neck Surgery. Having now returned to the Illawarra in 2008, he practices in general ENT, but with a particular subspecialty interest in adult obstructive sleep apnea and the management of those who have failed or rejected device use. He has published nationally and internationally, as well as presented both on the national and international stage, and runs an adult cadaver dissection clinic in conjunction with the Australian Sleep Association. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Noel. Thanks for coming down to sunny Wollongong today. We're going to restrict our discussion to the management of adult obstructive sleep apnea, uh, recognising that the paediatric problem is, is almost a completely different disease process, as is its management. Having said that, what is obstructive sleep apnea? So obstructive sleep apnea in the adult population is defined uh, at the moment polysomnographically by... AHI recommended criteria of an AHI greater than or equal to 5, 5 to 14 representing mild obstructive sleep apnea, 15 to 29 representing moderate obstructive sleep apnea and greater than 30 severe obstructive sleep apnea. But there are other scoring systems including Chicago criteria and alternate criteria and in Chicago, in the Chicago criteria system, a good paper by Banks and McAvoy from approximately 2005 demonstrated that the average AHI Chicago in the Australian population is seven in a non-snoring patient, so therefore zero to 13 was considered normal given standard deviations of the mean, and new definitions of zero 15 considered normal, 15 to 29 mild sleep apnea, 30 to 45 moderate sleep apnea, and above 45 severe sleep apnea. So the definition of obstructive sleep apnea depends significantly upon the scoring system used. How common is this problem? OSA in adults affects at least uh, 4% of men and 2% of women, but may affect up to 9% of women and 24% of men, depending upon uh, where the goalposts are posited for definitions. And how is obstructive sleep apnea and its spectrum subclassified? And is this relevant? So obstructive sleep apnea is on a spectrum from simple snoring to severe obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, there are also those who use a concept of upper airways resistance syndrome between simple snoring and mild obstructive sleep apnea but it is very much a spectrum disorder and the more severe the disorder the more severe the impact on the patient in terms of quality of life sleep fragmentation daytime tiredness and sleepiness and cardiovascular and motor vehicle accident risk. So having said those things, how then do these patients present to you? Classically, adult patients will present uh, with a history of snoring, which is one of the pathological hallmarks of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, Often they'll present at the urging of a partner, particularly in the middle-aged male population, due to the the social disruption of the snoring and the partner dissatisfaction. But they'll also often present with tiredness in the morning and waking unrefreshed despite uh, spending seven to eight hours in bed in many cases. 
they may present with daytime sleepiness or falling asleep in certain scenarios where they should not. Uh, and they might also present in many contexts with already having suffered cardiovascular consequences of their disease, such as a myocardial infarction, a cerebrovascular event, an arrhythmia, or in some cases a near uh, near death uh, experience from uh, some sort of cardiovascular experience. How then do you go about taking a history? Are there specific things that you look for? And what is the role of quality of life questionnaires in your assessment? So in the adult population, a comprehensive history is required, mainly because there can be a number of overlapping contributing factors to someone's sleep disorder, not just a breathing disorder. And also for the concept of tiredness and sleepiness, there can be a number of contributing factors, not just a sleep disorder or a sleep breathing disorder. So it's very important to establish what symptoms the patient has and what their major concerns are uh, prior to formal investigation. So some key or pertinent points are the snoring itself and the loudness of the snoring and who's describing the snoring. In particular, I like to ask the adult patients what time they most frequently go to bed and what time they get out of bed and then feed back to the patient the number of hours that that represents and ask them whether they feel like they've slept for that period of time and how they feel first thing in the morning and during the day. You really need to establish a sleep position, whether the patient sleeps predominantly on their side or on their back or in the prone position or in a combination of the above. Uh, and we, and you really need to establish any witnessed pauses or gasps or choking noise heard by the partner or by uh, family members uh, in the house. You want to know specifically, does the patient have any particular nasal pathology because there is an overlap between nasal symptoms and the spectrum of sleep disordered breathing, although in many cases it's more in order for a treatment paradigm to establish a patent nasal airway so that other treatments can work rather than treating the snoring or sleep apnea in and of itself uh, by correcting nasal pathology. And, of course, we want to know a detailed history about uh, their concomitant cardiovascular risk factors, uh, particularly hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, previous history of stroke or uh, myocardial infarction, smoking history, family history is very important, and so forth. And... You want to know any issues that they've had with tiredness or sleepiness performing uh, their occupation or driving a motor vehicle and, and so on. It's also fairly important to know in some, uh, in, it's also fairly important to know from history, although it'll subsequently established on examination, whether the patient's had any nasal or upper airway surgery before. In particular, have they had adenotonsillar surgery as a child or as a teenager? And one wants to establish any, any past history of tonsillitis or, um, upper respiratory tract infections that might impact on your decision for treatment for sleep disordered breathing also. And questionnaires? In terms of the questionnaires, all adult patients who attend my rooms fill out a snoring severity scale, an Epworth sleepiness score, including their weight and height and body mass index, which is actually checked in the rooms, and a functional outcomes of snoring questionnaire, which is a more extensive quality of life questionnaire covering a range of um, issues. Those questionnaires are particularly useful I believe, for pre- and post-intervention comparison so that we're not purely using a surrogate marker such as an apnea hypopnea index as an outcome uh, measure. 
Uh, it's quite rare in my experience, apart from patients that are in the armed forces, for them to attend the rooms and say, doctor, I want you to reduce my AHI. The patients have a greater depth of interest in their snoring, their partner satisfaction, their tiredness and sleepiness, and in their potential risk of future heart attack and stroke. How then do you examine the patients? Uh, what are the key areas that you assess? So all of these patients need a comprehensive 30 to 45 minute evaluation and examination wise they need an extensive uh, examination of their body habitus, height and weight, neck circumference and at least some concept of what's going on with their craniofacial profile and dentition, in particular looking for overbite or malocclusion, looking for retronathia, micronathia and maxillary hypoplasia. And their nasal airway is assessed in the normal way with particular focus on dynamic external nasal valve collapse and structural abnormalities inside the nose, such as septal deviations, uh, looking for mucosal disease, such as allergic rhinitis, polyp disease, mucopurulent discharge, and so forth in a normal fashion. And then uh, moving on to an extensive oral cavity oropharynx assessment, I like to... Uh, modify the so-called Friedman stage by introducing two tongue depressors into the mouth and have the patient uh, respiring softly transorally and then remove the two tongue depressors because in many instances I think one gets a false sense of the size of the tongue by patients that gag um, and so ideally one wants to know the relative position of the tongue palate and tonsillar size to each other and, um, and that needs to be established and, and documented. And then I go on to perform a supine uh, and erect position modified Mueller manoeuvre and Woodson's hypotonic method. Uh, and those manoeuvres are performed looking at um, potential obstructions at the retropalatal and retrolingual and hypopharyngeal levels. However, we're also looking at whether there's a common factor generating collapse at those levels rather than trying to single the levels out individually. Um, furthermore... Um, I, in addition to those manoeuvres, I do a jaw thrust or march manoeuvre or if the patient has previously had a mandibular advance and splint fitted, ask them to bring it in and do the manoeuvres with that in situ to try and establish uh, issues that might be ongoing. We'll move on to the sleep study in a second, but is there any role for imaging in these patients? Imaging really should be guided by your clinical assessment. So imaging of the paranasal sinuses might be requisite in the same way that it is uh, for other patients with nasal pathology because my belief and philosophy is that one has to have nasal disease controlled in order to facilitate subsequent treatments for sleep apnea. Uh, and then there is potentially a role for cephalometric imaging and the debate is between plain radiology, CT, airway reconstruction protocol and MRI uh, I tend to use CT airway reconstruction protocol when I am looking at operations that are, are of a reasonably extensive nature or greater than, for example, a simple modified uvulopalatal fingerplasty or simple techniques to the tongue. I will use CT cephalometry to establish, in particular, features such as the SNA and SNB angles to look at the total lingual surface area in respiration, in inspiration and expiration, to look at mandibular plane to hyoid height uh, and some of those features may influence the decision about the extent of my operation but generally speaking it's utilised to confirm my clinical findings. What then is the role of a sleep study? Who gets one? In my practice 
all adult patients who present for the treatment of snoring get a formal in-laboratory polysomnogram, uh, except in some cases of um, armed forces personnel who have had a level two polysomnogram performed and reviewed by a sleep physician and been referred specifically by a sleep physician, then I would accept that. The rationale for that is there is a proportion of patients who snore but have absolutely no other features clinically of obstructive sleep apnea but still have a significant degree of OSA and probably have the concomitant cardiovascular risk that goes with it. There are still some sectors that will debate that, but my feeling is that approximately 20% or one-fifth of patients who have no other features but still have severe sleep apnea are still reasonably sick patients in terms of their risk um, despite not having the other symptoms that go with it. And... What do you look for on the sleep study to help you, guide you in your management? I prefer to receive the entire data from the formal polysomnogram and one wants to become experienced at reviewing all of that data and be familiar in particular with your local laboratory and their scoring system, uh, which is very important. And for any pre- and post-intervention sleep study, compare the outcomes in the same laboratory, preferably so that the same scoring criteria is being utilised. Specifically, I like to look for the total um, sleep time, how many hours they slept in the lab, the sleep efficiency, which is offered as a percentage, the amount of um, non-REM sleep, the percentage of REM sleep and slow-wave sleep. We're looking at the apnea hypopnea index, but particularly looking at the breakdown of how many apneas and how many hypopneas. One wants to know the duration of the apneas and hypopneas, uh, specifically because some patients where we've recognised it's a spectrum of disease, the higher the AHI, so-called, the more sick they are. But there are those patients that have significantly prolonged apneas or hypopneas and therefore may have a lesser AHI but actually be more unwell than others who are having briefer events but more frequent events. Uh, we're looking for the nadir or lowest oxygen saturation as well as getting an idea or a guide from the hypnogram of the average um, oxygen saturation. One wants to line up the apnea and hypopnea events with what happens to the op- oxygen desaturation index and also get a good guide on the cortical arousal index and respiratory arousal index and how those parameters relate specifically to the AHI. Certainly uh, in the children, or no, we're not talking specifically about the paediatric population, but one can often get a guide in the paediatric population if the AHI is 12, the PLM index is 12 and the cortical arousal index is 12, then uh, it sort of lines up that every time this child's having an event, there's movement and sleep fragmentation. And so one wants to use those parameters to line up. And furthermore, in the adult population, you specifically want to look at the positional data, the percentage of supine sleep, lateral sleep, and so forth, and try to correlate that clinically with how the patient sleeps at home. If you have a sleep study where the patient spent most of the time in the supine position, but they don't sleep supine at home, that may, in some cases, overestimate your data and vice versa. What then is the role of the different levels of sleep study? Is overnight oximetry of any value? Personally, in my hands, it's a very limited value. Uh, and so all patients will have a level one formal in-laboratory polysomnogram or with the exceptions that I mentioned for a level two study. I don't have a significant role for level three and below studies, but recognise uh, that some patients where the data is adequate and has been reviewed by a sleep physician 
maybe that may be appropriate for patients who are going on to device use. But in my hands, where we're considering contemporary surgical options, we want a, a high-level polysomnogram before and after any interventions other than pre-phase nasal surgery. So uh, you've got your diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. What then is the role of medical therapy? I think medical therapy uh, really has a limited role apart from improving a patent nasal airway to facilitate subsequent treatment. So that might include controlling mucosal disease with topical corticosteroid spray or saltwater douches or in some cases immunotherapy for those patients with significant allergic disease of the nose so that they can more adequately uh, tolerate or uh, have, in some cases, a lower CPAP pressure. There's also good evidence, Australian evidence, to support use of improving and, and establishing a patent nasal airway with medical or surgical therapy to improve uh, mandibular advance and splint use. There's evidence that the higher the nasal airway resistance, the less likely patients are to comply with or tolerate a jaw splint in the mouth, which makes good philosophical sense also. Uh, so I think that's really the, the major role. There is some evidence in the children, child population about use of um, leukotriene inhibitors and topical sprays to temporise whilst patients are on waiting lists for adenotonsillectomy surgery. But apart from that, I think the, the role of medicines are limited. There may be a role under the specific watch of sleep physicians for so-called alertness-type medication in patients who have obstructive sleep apnea and significant daytime somnolence. There's the recent development of medications such as modafinil, which might be used in the context of patients or indicated in the context of patients who are on CPAP but still remain tired or somnolent during the day despite demonstrated lab efficacy of CPAP. Uh, and there may be a role for some other medications to improve sleep with concomitant sleep disorders and sleep apnea, such as melatonin um, or Tegretol. Just to clarify, at this point we've accepted that uh, CPAP is the gold standard and the discussion here is limited to those who have failed or rejected device use, just for uh, the purpose of um, those people listening. Um, we're going to go on in the next podcast to talk about surgical management, but to wrap things up, I'm going to give you the final word. So the final word is an opportunity to uh, sum up uh, something that we've talked about that you think is of great importance or to talk about something that we haven't in relation to either the assessment or medical management of obstructive sleep apnea. I think probably just to summarise, Niall, the important thing for the ear, nose and throat surgeon is to do a comprehensive and detailed clinical and investigatory um, assessment of the adult snoring patient uh, to take a genuine and detailed history, a comprehensive examination involving nasal, orthognathic, oral cavity and oropharynx and nasendoscopic assessment. I didn't mention in the body of the discussion that there is a small percentage of patients uh, demonstrated in Scher's analysis from the 1990s that may have some structural abnormality of the airway contributing to their sleep apnea, so that my belief is that these patients require that assessment. Um, and then formal polysomnography or at least high-level polysomnography under the auspices of a sleep physician in all those patients who present for the investigation of snoring or a sleep breathing disorder. And the one addition that we probably should mention for those complex patients or the difficult patients where standard therapies have been difficult to consider a multidisciplinary team set up. We have a multidisciplinary team here in the Illawarra that includes myself as an ENT surgeon 
an adult and paediatric sleep physician, uh, dentist with an interest in mandibular advance and splints, uh, personal trainer, weight loss expert or exercise physiologist, a sleep psychologist, and in every third clinic we have uh, an expert orthodontist with access to a maxillofacial surgeon for the patients with orthognathic issues. Thanks very much, Professor Mackay. This is another podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. You can download these for free through iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or, follow, or find us at our website, entexpertopinion.com. Music